Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. And as we have been doing for weeks with the COVID virus, we're talking about a special edition of The Advocate. And uh, in the first two segments tonight, we're going to be talking to a doctor who has firsthand experience in the front lines here in Cleveland about how the COVID virus is being transmitted, how much he's seeing of it, and maybe some insight as far as what's going on today and tomorrow with the COVID virus. Uh, I'd like to introduce Dr. Ann Carroll. Dr. Carroll, thank you for joining us. And thank you for having me. You know, we've had you on before wearing a different hat as uh, working with the FAA and being a, a medical examiner for uh, the FAA, uh, which is, for me, always the fun part of life. But uh, we've, we've been talking and we've known each other for years been talking recently about your experience uh, working in an emergency room and dealing with COVID. Uh, in your decades of service in the medical profession, uh, what can you do to summarize what's going on with the COVID virus now and well, how I think the media has been handling things? Well, um, first, COVID is a new virus, and so it should be taken very seriously. Um, and, and the problem that we had with COVID, and as time goes on, we get smarter, is that we didn't know who had it until they were very sick because we had no way of testing initially. Many people are asymptomatic carriers, and the question is whether because they have the virus and they're asymptomatic, can they transmit it? Because everyone who has something doesn't necessarily transmit it. And we found that the, they, they didn't show any evidence of infection. For instance, like the seasonal flu, people were most, of, most contagious two to three days before they get sick. But when they get sick, we isolate them or they should be isolated. And, of course, we have a vaccine, which is about maybe 60% effective. It's not that great. But we have something to deal with. With COVID, we didn't have anything. We were just seeing very, very ill people coming in, and we, <clears throat> we didn't know what they had. Um, we've gotten a lot smarter. Um, over the last couple of weeks, the incidence of COVID coming, we're testing a lot more now than we did before. We're finding that a lot of people are positive, maybe about 13% of what we've tested, and I think the most recent stats are about 12 million and change. About 13% of those people are positive, but that doesn't mean they're all sick. So that's where the problem comes in. Um, Japan did a very interesting thing, um, whether it's right or wrong, with uh, what happened with the Diamond Princess uh, cruise. All those people are, many of those people were infected with coronavirus, but many were not, despite close uh, infection rates, or should be infection rates. And so they looked at it and said, well, what's going on here? And they started doing, which I think is a good way of handling this sort of clustering. People who are sick get isolated. <laughs> people who aren't sick don't get isolated. I've, I've, mm -hmm. I've never heard of taking healthy people and putting them in isolation. 
So I think that was a big problem. They didn't close down their country. They have far less. Tokyo, being the most dense population, populated city in the world, didn't have as nearly as many deaths as New York City. So I'm trying to, as I read more and more, trying to figure out what was going on. What did they do that was different than what we've done? And they did this cluster approach, you know. And of course, it's their culture too. There isn't a physical contact; it's not part of their con, uh, their culture. If you've ever been in a Japanese subway, it's awful. But you don't talk. They're pushers. They have the jammers. Right. They'll jam you into the subway. Right, and uh, routinely the Japanese wear masks because of hay fever and other reasons, so they already had masks on, so their rate of infectivity was much less than what we had in this country. Um, They didn't lock down their country. When they had a cluster of infected individuals, the government came in and and they took, say, stay in, this way, in, 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 and they could control it. Many places in this country don't have COVID. We're not seeing it. So I'm not sure that it, we should have had a nationwide, everything is closed. I'm not sure that that was the most uh, progressive thing to do. But so it brings, you look it brings at things. Up we've been, well, we, we've been watching what's going on in Sweden where they didn't close mm-hmm. everything down. And uh, they're being criticized now for the death rate. Sweden, about the size population-wise of Ohio, mm-hmm. has uh, a little over two times as many deaths uh, with the uncontrolled, un, unshutdown. Uh, and, and the question is, and we see sort of a binary question here in Ohio, well, in the country, we have the health and science on the one side, and on the other side, we have the economy and the social aspects of how are we handling this virus. Uh, so with regard to Sweden, is a good example of how they uh, had the society open, and there's a lot more dead people because of it. Uh, yeah, per, per capita, have, I would say. Per, per um, capita. Well, how, how does that square up with what we have been doing up to this point? Well, we've you know, shutting down the country is, causes an, a lot of other problems, and I'm not, I'm just looking at the health aspect of it. I'm, I'm I'm taking the financial and the economy out of the picture. You're seeing a lot more people coming in with drug overdoses, uh, complications from alcoholism, and mental health. People aren't going to the emergency room because they're afraid they're going to get COVID, so they stay home until the last minute with a heart attack or having a stroke. I mean, there are lots of other things out there that people get sick with other than COVID. And so that is certainly contributing to morbidity and mortality, in, in, at least in this area we've seen. Um, I see a lot of influenza B when I finally get people in. Um, testing them, and they have influenza B, and they're relieved that they don't have COVID, but I say, you're still stinky sick. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's yeah, right. the way it is. Uh, people with community-acquired Fire. pneumonia, people die with community-acquired pneumonia, and they, they're not coming to the emergency room or calling their doctors. There are a lot of telemedicine, so I get a lot of patients that are referred to me from telemedicine because they need to be seen. And But the, the fear that the population has to get any kind of health care is, is really disconcerting, to say the least. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, well, it is. I think uh, the, the media, which has been reporting the ongoing situation, has been very successful in uh, panicking the, in the entire country, getting everyone <laughs> very fearful. Now, do you think that, that fear that everyone has, keeping them indoors, is, is beneficial, or are we overdoing it? Um, I think that's probably my personal feeling, and I've talked to my other friends, peers who are also in medicine, 
think it's a little bit overdone. Um, especially, so you take a family, let's say a five, and you have an asymptomatic carrier that, you know, they're not sick. But you have individuals in that family that are high risk uh, for contracting it so that you isolate them together. What's going to happen? <laughs> they're all going the to come down people, with COVID. Yeah. yeah, because you've kept them isolated. Uh, so I, I know that the, something came out um, in New York. They were, con- they were, they said like 66% of the people who had COVID that were in isolation were from families. Well, that makes sense to me. If you have an asymptomatic carrier, that's what's going to happen. People are going to get infected. You know, if you're in the same area and poor ventilation, it's a it's the equation mm-hmm. for the disease. So, so what? So what is the best uh, way way to handle this as an individual? Because we have all of these factors. For example, you mentioned the emotional factor that we have, uh, and with regard to uh, how are we dealing with this? We're opening up the economy. Are people trying to get back carefully? But everybody, right. a lot of people well, are scared I, to I, death. Right. And, and, and I think the problem starts with not giving our, our populace tools to take care of themselves and to take care of their family. Sir William Ausler, who I, uh, I love, if you ever read any of his uh, books, was brilliant. And he talked about these epidemics and these pandemics. And what did he say? Soap and water and common sense. Okay? If someone is sick, you don't want to go in and spend time with that individual. You are going to, chances are you're going to infect yourself. I watch people driving through, (coughs) excuse me, the takeouts for food. Mm -hmm. And they're getting the food and they're eating. They haven't washed their hands. So... In all likelihood, they could have had it on their hands and they're infecting themselves. I mean, those sorts of things I think are important to do. I always felt that wearing a mask early on was important because something, my feeling is something is better than nothing. And if somebody is standing near you and sneezing and coughing and you don't have any kind of protection, you know, your inoculum is going to be much higher. So I think these are the things that people need to do. I don't think they need to be afraid. I think they need to uh, be more cautious. I think they need to not be in a crowded room with a bunch of people. I think they need to self-protect with a mask. Washing your hands all the time, keeping them clean. Is, uh, these are important things to do, things that we actually should be doing, not necessarily the mask, but on a day-to-day basis without an epidemic, we should be having better hygiene. <laughs> it, well, having, and I think we're all learning that through this uh, experience we're having with COVID-19 is that uh, it's invisible. We don't know where it is. We don't know where it isn't. Uh, so we're just assuming it's everywhere. And we're, we're washing our hands constantly. We're trying to stay away from those crowds, uh, especially people who are over 60, like myself, uh, a high-risk group. We're not going to tempt fate with what's going on out here. But we're going to take a short break. We're talking to Dr. Ann Carroll about COVID-19. And she's a, fri- a front-line doctor involved with treating patients with COVID symptoms. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking about COVID-19 with Dr. Ann Carroll. Uh, Dr. Carroll has been on our program before talking about FAA medical licensures and certifications, but today we're talking to her about her experience in the emergency room dealing with COVID patients. Dr. Carroll, as always, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nick. You know, when uh, during the break we were talking about uh, the the virus being a novel virus and the fact that there's it's lethal in some cases, but uh, I think as an average person we're not really sure uh, what to believe because of false information, uh, misleading information, scary information, but yet of real information. And I know we've also had other viruses uh, come through, like the H1N1 several years ago. And influenza A this uh, this past year, these viruses also come through the population and also have a certain lethality to them. Uh, what have we learned, and what do we know about those other viruses and the coronavirus, and how should we act? Well, I think common sense is a big part of taking care of ourselves and our families. If there's a virus out there, something you don't see, and it's recommended that you wear a mask in case you go into a room where there's somebody who is infected and is coughing and sneezing, it gives you some protection. It doesn't give you 100% protection. I don't think anything does. But it should keep you from being afraid to live your life. You need to wash your hands. Keep your hands clean. Before you sit down to eat, Wash your hands. Going out uh, to the grocery stores or shopping or whatever you're doing, wash your hands. I I carry a little thing right on my cell phone where I'm constantly washing my hands. If I'm touching whatever, and then I'll wash my hands and so that I don't transmit anything, not just COVID, any kind of. You pick up GI things from uh, from inanimate objects all the time so that I don't transmit a disease to myself. I think these are the important things that we need to do. If you're sick... Stay home. You know, don't contaminate. Don't uh, take the risk of giving it to someone else. Don't be afraid mm-hmm. to call your doctor. Don't be afraid to go to the emergency room that you're going to get COVID. We take a lot of uh, protection for our patients. As soon as they walk in, we slap a mask on them. We do social distancing. We, we use Every other bed is not right next to each other. So, so we do things that don't neglect yourself out of fear. That's the big problem. Well, we noticed in the uh, news media the other day where the uh, bars are opening and we saw video of people all crammed in together in uh, patio situations. Uh, No social distancing, everybody uptight and personal and up close and personal. How responsible Um, is that or is that okay? It's not real responsible because now what we will see is you're going to see a rise in the number of of people who have COVID. That's just going to naturally occur. And so then when that starts, when you start to see a rise in in the incidence of the disease, you have to step in and take certain measures. What are the certain measures? Well, we're going to have to close down that bar because people are all hugging and drinking and, and spreading the, sharing drinks and spreading the disease around. This is not, responsible behavior. I'm sorry until we get through this. And I have to tell you, I think this is this virus is going to be with us again. Once we get it under control, it will surface again in the fall, like many of these seasonal viruses do. The H1N1 is still around, comes uh, yeah, in the fall, so we're not done with it. So we have to learn to be not just take care of ourselves, but be a good steward of our community. 
And that means wearing a mask. Even though you don't think you need it, maybe that other guy needs you to need it. <laughs> you know, don't... Is, is, it ac- is it accurate about the mask that, for the most part, uh, one, the N95 mask we hear so much about, unless yeah. you have a properly fitted N95 mask, it's not necessarily going to protect you from a, a high virus environment uh, from the COVID, but uh, having an N95 mask or having a surgical mask or a cloth homemade mask is basically designed to keep you from spreading what you may have if you're an asymptomatic carrier. Is that that's, about it? Yeah, that's correct. And what I've told a lot of, because the masks were, uh, were premium, that a lot of these cloth masks that are being made that have pockets in them, early on I would say to people, they're saying, well, it's just a cloth mask. I said, you know in your vacuum cleaner it has a HIPAA filter, which is what the airlines use, by the way. I said, mm-hmm. clip some of that and put it in the pocket of your mask. Okay, that gives you an extra step. That doesn't mean you don't wash your hands. That doesn't mean you don't do social distancing. That doesn't mean you can be around someone who's stinky sick with it. It means that it gives you an extra protection. Okay, and HIPAAs get about 95% of what's circulating around there. So you have a cloth, and then you have a filter, then you have another cloth. So every layer that you you wear protects you from anything, not just from mm-hmm. COVID. A lot of um, stuff out there. Yeah. Well, your, your experience, you work in an emergency room, and mm-hmm. uh, people are referred to emergency rooms if they go to their primary care physician with symptoms that can be consistent with COVID, and uh, their their primary care physician is going to tell them, go to the emergency room if you have these symptoms and you, you have them. So people are coming to your emergency room because some doctor has said, go to the emergency room because of these symptoms. What's your experience with these people coming over? Does everybody have COVID or what's going on? No, everyone doesn't have COVID. Um, uh, many people have other things. Some people just have the common cold, which, by the way, is a COVID coronavirus. Um, some people have pneumonia, the run-of-the-mill community-acquired pneumonia that we see all the time, particularly this time of year. A lot of influenza A, a lot of influenza B. That's what I'm saying. Yes, I do see COVID, Um People come in and I take a good history from them. Well, why do you think it's COVID? You know, because you have this or that or the other thing, it could be uh, five different diseases, not necessarily COVID. I personally test everybody that comes in because I think we need to know what we're dealing with. And I would say about half the people I tested have co- were COVID positive and nobody got admitted. They had mild disease, went home, and I would call them every day and check on them. How is this? How is that? And they were getting better at home. I'm do you prescribe medications? Do you prescribe any uh, medications? Um, some individuals I'll give azithromycin to, um, and those individuals usually are the kind that have a history of smoking and they have a seasonal bronchitis, that sort of thing. So I find I sort of put them on a different tier. I'm not mm-hmm. treating the COVID. I'm trying to treat the complications that would make the COVID worse. That's so like I a do. secondary bacterial infection? That one Correct. 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 And is that what we call ZPAC? So yes, you know, we that's hear that. Mm-hmm. So ZPAC. So, and uh, that is there anything that you tell them, or you, from a treatment standpoint, tell someone with a positive COVID nineteen um, what they should do as far as I guess rest, drink plenty of fluids, typical flu type right. treatments. They have to. They have to self quarantine for fourteen days. 
14 days, when they are without fever for 72 hours, without taking anything to treat a fever, then we say you can go outside again, taking all the precautions that you normally should take, a mask, washing your hands, social distancing. That's what we do. Have you, I call, have you seen? I call, go ahead. I call oh, them every ahead. day You're, if they're positive uh, to see how they're doing because if they're progressing and not is getting worse, then they have to come back to the emergency room. We have to address it. So I just don't throw them out there and say, good luck. <laughs> People are afraid of so, this disease. They, well, they're terrified. I think we're all yeah. terrified. And uh, the thought is, how do we live with this fear? How do we get over the fear? And do you have a, a sense for how ubiquitous or how widespread this live virus is? Are, are we all walking in clouds of this stuff? Or do we really get some help by looking for people who might have some symptoms or listening up for people who have had contact with people like that? How, how well, do we navigate I, this? Well, in... It's like they did in Japan, they had the cluster. You know, somebody had had COVID, were tested, they were positive. Then they would look at all their contacts and everybody be tested and everybody would be isolated that was positive or potentially going to be infected. Here, as we test more and more people uh, without using just the strict guidelines, we're going to find a lot more people have the disease. And we may have a certain herd immunity that we didn't even know about, but it's too soon to know that. What we'll find out as we open more and more things, as people migrate more, that we're going to see more COVID. Most people will have a very mild case. They won't have these terrible things happening to them. Um, and, and, and I think this virus is going to run its course as most viruses do. You're always going to have a certain percentage of at-risk population, high-risk population, and a certain, uh, sometimes substantial mortality from it uh, uh, because they haven't been exposed to it. Mm -hmm. With the H1N1, it was young kids that were very, very sick with it. Most people over the age of 60 didn't get it. But we had a lot of people dying. A lot of people had it, over 60 million. It didn't didn't seem as as bad as what we have here with the well, you didn't uh, have the media COVID-19. hysteria. Yeah, uh, the media. Well, we're running out of time, but Dr. Ann Carroll, thank you so much for sharing with us tonight. I'd like to have you back again as as we go through this experience with COVID-19 uh, and the economy and media and the health. But um, in any event, we'll all get through it. And thank you for your help today. All right. Thank you very much. Bye now. Thank you so much. Bye mm-hmm. now. We'll be uh, back after these words. We're tra- taking a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips is here with another edition of The Advocate. Uh, and as always, always now we're talking about uh, the coronavirus, COVID-19, and how it's affecting us uh, in, in all sorts of ways. Uh, tonight in the next few segments, we'll be talking to Karen Cosna from the Greater Cleveland Food Bank, talking about how the food bank is helping out people here in the county. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on today. Uh, you're the director of communications over at the Greater Cleveland Food Bank, so I assume that uh, you, you do have all the communications we need to find out about the Cleveland Food Bank. 
That's right. Um, <laughs> right. Tell us a little bit about the food bank for people who don't know. Uh, is this sure. a government agency or is it a charity or who sponsors <laughs> it? How do you uh, go ahead? So the Greater Cleveland Food Bank is a is a nonprofit uh, agency, and uh, we cover we help provide service to six counties in Northeast Ohio. Um, and those counties include not only Cuyahoga County, but we go out um, east to Lake Geauga, Ashtabula County, and then we also serve Ashland and Richland County. Uh, and basically, we uh, provide food and direct service to uh, partner agencies. Those agencies include pantries, uh, hot meal programs, uh, programs that are specific to helping uh, children and seniors as well. And um, last year, you know, we provided enough food uh, for over 50 million meals to folks here in Northeast Ohio. Uh, and like I said, we, you know, we get the food um, from a variety of places. Uh, we get them from local retailers and um, manufacturers. We also do get support through both uh the local, state, and federal government, and um, we really—it's—it's it's quite the operation. If you've ever uh, seen the food bank off of the Shoreway in Cleveland, we're just east of downtown, uh, and like I said, we are constantly working to make sure that we get the food out into the community and get it into the hands of people who need it most. When uh, we think of food banks generally. I think in terms of there being a place where individuals can go and pick up food. Um, Correct. In, in your situation, I've seen it on TV where there are long lines of cars coming to pick up food. And, and these are mm -hmm. private individuals to come by? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. So we um, not only supply food to the various partner programs, which we have almost a thousand of those programs, but we also do our own distribution. So, um, we will host uh, distributions throughout the year. Uh, typically, the food bank does it once a month where uh, we would have cars come through to the food bank to pick up a box of food. Um, and on average, you know, we usually serve anywhere from about 1,000 to 1,200 households. Uh, since the pandemic has started over the last eight weeks, that number has really skyrocketed as far as the number of people that we're serving. When people individually uh, need food and they, they mm -hmm. want to come to the food bank to get food, uh, how do they do that? Do they just show up or do they have to register or do they have to show um, anything? Or how, how do they do that? Yeah. So when people do come to, to you know, look for help, whether it's for food or, you know, um, any type of assistance, like, you know, to see if they're eligible for SNAP, which is also known as food stamps, um, they can come to the food bank. And uh, we do have a help center on site. Uh, people can call our help center if it's easier to call. And uh, when they call their, the help center, they can let folks, our, our, our client help specialists, know um, where they live. And they can either direct them to a pantry or hot meal program to, closer to where they live or you know, they can suggest that they come into the food bank um, for additional help. But um, they can also go to our website, 
and see, you know, where the nearest pantry would be to them. And then also, like I said, they could come to the food bank. And basically, if, if you're in need of food, you do have to have like a self-declaration of um, need. You do have to show some, um, it's, it's pretty basic as far as, you know, uh, some basic paperwork and that that they, they would need to fill out. And like I said, I recommend that folks call our help center um, which you can find that number on our website, or the number is um, 216-738-2067. And we have people, you know, Monday through Friday, happy to help and happy to direct people to where they can get get help. You mentioned a self-declaration. Is this something like it's a form that you have to print off the Internet and fill it out and give it to somebody um, and register online? And what, we, what does this mean? We have, we have the paperwork typically at the the um the distributions when we're when we're distributing the food um or you know at any of our pantries when they're open when folks come the papers typically provided to them um when we've been doing the drive-through distributions most recently during the pandemic we've been trying to reduce the use of paper and pen as much as possible so we have been trying to encourage folks to go online and um and fill out uh, the registration before coming to our drive-through distribution, uh, and that is specific to our distribution. Uh, we're working with a lot of our other uh, partner agencies and in trying to help get them online as well, um, because obviously, like during this pandemic, one of the things we want to do is try and minimize contact as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do I see National Guards uh, men, women helping out? Yes. Absolutely. We have almost 70 National Guardsmen at the food bank. Um, they have been, they were deployed in, I would say, the second or third week of March, and uh, they have been a huge help to our operations. Uh, you know, last year we had over 21,000 volunteers help out at the food bank. Uh, they were packing boxes of food, packing bags of food, preparing meals in the kitchen on site, just doing a variety of projects. And once the pandemic hit, we were not able to really have volunteers safely in the building. Um, and, and many of them didn't feel safe necessarily coming to the building. So we're very fortunate in our state that um, the governor deployed the National Guard, and um, they have been helping on a variety of uh, things and really wouldn't be able to do what we've been doing without them. So they've been packing emergency food boxes. They've been packing bags of food that are going out to children in need. Um, they've been making deliveries uh, senior to seniors who are homebound. They've been helping with the logistics at our distributions that we've been hosting every week. And um, they really have become a key part to our operations. Yes, I'm listening to you and I'm visualizing what it must look like. And because uh, I, I have the images from the television reports of the long lines of uh-huh. cars, the people handling boxes and putting them into trunks and so on. Uh, I, right. I think of the uh, whole idea of how we're trying to manage COVID-19 and limit the spread of it and how that can mm-hmm. affect staffing. If you have one person who comes to work over there and they test positive, you have to do the contact list and you have to have quarantine for 14 days. Uh, have mm-hmm. you had to do any of that? Have you had any people who came to work and were tested positive and you had to take a chunk of your staff and quarantine them for two weeks? We have been very um, vigilant since since 
this has all started to really um, encourage mask wearing, encourage the six feet of social distancing, um, encourage folks to wash their hands regularly and use hand sanitizer when needed. Um, we've been deep cleaning the building more often. Um, and so, you know, we have really been vigilant about making sure that, um, you know, our, our staff is safe. We've even been trying to rotate um folks, you know, as far as when they're in the building or not in the building and also when, um, you know, if they have the ability to work from home, we encourage folks to do that. Our IT department has been very busy over the last couple of months mm-hmm. um, just making sure that everybody has what they need. Um, and so, you know, uh, I think, you know, inevitably um, there have been a few people who have, have been, you know, diagnosed with, with COVID-19, but we've been able to manage that. And, you know, we immediately do a deep clean and, and make sure that they're um, quarantined in the way. And so, you know, it's always top of mind. It is something that, um, you know, we we are aware of daily, you know, but we're also essential in our work. And we got to make sure that the people who need food are getting the food that they need. Um, and so Absolutely. that is... Very, very important, but we have been doing everything in our power to um, make sure that we are taking care of, of our staff and, of course, you know, with the guardsmen in the building, too, that they are doing the same. Well, well the key, as you mentioned, uh, having your staff and having everybody feel safe, that's number one. Well, we seem yep. to have two things going on. We have the medical science side of the problem, and then we have the economic side of the problem. And for anyone right. to come out, even come out of their house, they have to feel safe. And uh, so yep. we're, we're looking at that. We're, we're going to take a short break and uh, be back. We're talking to Karen Posner from the Greater Cleveland Food Bank, finding out all the intimate little details about who they are and how they work and how you may interact with the food bank. So uh, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. We'll be back after these words. Thank you. Back to Nick Phillips, which is another segment of the advocate. Tonight we're talking about the Greater Cleveland Food Bank and how do we feed uh, the people who need food because of the economic situation, the loss of jobs, mm-hmm. the financial hardships. With us tonight is the Greater Cleveland Food Bank Director of Communications, Karen Posner. Karen, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me today. Always good to have you here and hear about the great works of the Cleveland Food Bank. And you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, in the last segment that there's a, a drive-through uh, distribution that goes on once a week. And when we see that mm-hmm. on TV, we see these long lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people wait in a long line, uh, tell us a little bit, two things. Number one, is uh, is there much contact between your staff and the volunteers and the people in their vehicles? Mm-hmm. Secondly, what what's in those boxes they put in the back of the box? Sure. So the the food bank has been hosting um, drive through distributions since this uh, pandemic started, and we just completed our tenth distribution uh, that we've been now hosting down at the Muni lot. And the reason that we've been hosting them at the Muni lot is because uh, we really outgrew the space at the food bank. Uh, the need has just increased so dramatically. 
uh, since this pandemic started that we needed to um, find another location. Uh, when we were first doing the distributions at the food bank, we had, uh, as you'd mentioned, you know, lines that were miles long throughout our neighborhood, and we just couldn't um, do that to the, to the neighborhood that we were in with the food bank because we had to make sure that, you know, traffic could get by. So we've since moved it down to the Muni lot. And um, what we do is we encourage folks to pre-register um, online. And so they go online, they fill out a quick form with their name, some basic information, and then they get a number. And so when they come to the drive through they have their number and they can either have it on their phone or they can write it on a piece of paper and when they pull into the um, the Muni lot, they're directed around um, with the help of Cleveland Police Department and Food Bank staff and that. They're directed around and they get checked in. They have to hold the number up in their window. So they really, they do not need to roll down their window. They don't even need to, um, you know, talk to someone through their car. Um, they can keep their window rolled up, have that number in there, and uh, we'll have a volunteer checking them in. They, we, we enter that number into um, a special software that we use. They get checked in. We know um, how many boxes, like if if there's more than one family in a car, then they can get more than one box. But typically it's it's one box per family. And so then we'll drive up into the next section, and that is where we've had uh, the help of the National Guard. And they will uh, fill their trunk with a box of food. And um, typically it's a, a shelf-stable box of food that could include um, – a five to seven day supply. So a lot of times there's some breakfast type food, whether it's oatmeal or cereal. Um, they'll have some other meals, you know, some pasta um, with a sauce or um, cans of soup, um, cans of beans. Uh, it's really kind of varied from week to week. And in addition, over the last couple of weeks, we've been very fortunate to get some donations of fresh produce. So in addition to the shelf-stable box of food, We've also been able to include some fresh produce. So, you know, folks have been able to get a bag of apples or a bag of oranges or even some additional um, vegetables, you know, everything from like zucchini or squash um, that would also be available. And so it is really a nice assortment that um, people have been able to get when they come down to our distribution. And that is, Um, you know, inserted right into the trunk and they're on their way. And they're on their way. Mm -hmm. the way you describe it, it's such a uh, varied uh, collection of foods that it's not the same at every box. I guess there'll be different things depending on what you have. Well, the boxes are the same. So um, the boxes, we we pack on average um, 7,500 boxes of shelf-stable food each week. And much of that food has been purchased. Um, because of the increased demand right now, um, and the fact is that we're still supplying all of our, you know, hundreds of partner programs, too, in addition to preparing these boxes. And so um, a lot of the food that is in the boxes is purchased product, um, and that's where, you know, uh, the financial donations from folks in the community have just been so important to our operation because it's helped us to be able to purchase that food. The when someone gets in line down at the community lot, so what mm-hmm. kind of wait can they expect in traffic? Like hours? Well, it, it depends. <laughs> I, I think oh. that 
some folks just have this fear that we're going to run out of food. And, and I can reassure people that we have never run out of food. Um, and um, there are people who arrive super early. And if you tend to arrive early, uh, then you tend to wait longer because, you know, a lot of times the distribution isn't scheduled to start until 2 o'clock. But if, um, if, you know, we're all set and ready to go, then we'll open up earlier. Um, but, you know, I would say on average... Now, since we've been doing this for, for several weeks, um, people wait in line maybe around 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Um, I can tell you in the beginning, the lines were, were much longer. Uh, and, you know, it was just a lot of tweaking. And um, like I said, I think people have a fear of, of that we're going to run out of food. But um, since then, it's, it's become a pretty smooth operation. And we average about 2,000 cars um, every week that we, um, you know, get through the line within a few hours. Everyone, we ask them to be patient. Uh, looking at yes. your statistics from last year, we know they're going to be higher this year. Uh, you mm-hmm. served over 300,000 clients, uh, 57.3 right. million meals, 21 mm-hmm. million pounds of food, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it takes a lot to, to operate. This is a huge operation. Uh, this is not mm-hmm. just a, a little spare room in a warehouse where people mm-hmm. come to the food bank. It's a major operation. Let's look at the donation side, the mm-hmm. the asset side. Uh, how do people donate to the food bank? And do you go out and buy all your food, or do people can they deliver pallets of food that's still good? So we, you know, monetary donations really are the best right now, um, and they can, you know, folks, if you're if you're able and and willing to make a monetary donation, we encourage you to go to our website at greaterclevelandfoodbank.org, and you can make a donation right there on our website. Uh, and we're able to provide, um, for every dollar donated, uh, we can provide enough food for four nutritious meals. And we do that because of our buying power, because of our purchase power, um, because of the help that we have from volunteers. And so, um, you know, we're able to make that, that money go a long way. Um, in addition to the monetary donations, we do get support, like I said, from, from the state and the federal government as well. Um, and then, you know, local retailers, local manufacturers uh, also donate product. Um, but, like, right now, being in, in this time during the pandemic, uh, when we are packing these emergency boxes every week, um, we like to make sure that we have the same food in the boxes. That's where I think the monetary donations are so important. Um, as also now, it's it, it's a, we're in such a unique situation because we're heading into summer, and summer is typically one of our busiest times because it's when the kids are out of school. Um, obviously, this summer is pretty unique because kids have already been out two months, um, and you know here we are going into the summer months where they'll be out another additional three months, and so. We are really trying to figure out um, the best way to get meals to those kids because many of those programs may not be open this summer, um, and and you know we've got to figure out how we can reach them. Um, we actually have an outreach truck on our uh, on uh, at the food bank where we would go around the neighborhoods and pass out fresh produce and sign people up for. Um, food stamps and that, but this summer we're looking at taking that truck out and doing grab-and-go meals for kids in certain neighborhoods, which would be something new and different and really 
taken it right to the need. Um, and so we have to really continue to think creatively about how we get this food out during this pandemic. Well, we're going to have to read your book that you should be writing now. <laughs> Talk about how, <laughs> how do you feed, it almost sounds biblical, you have to feed millions of people without having a total enough yeah. amount of food here. But, right, uh, and with, I mean... I was just going to say um, one statistic that has really stuck with me over the last few days that I heard is um, we've served 20,000 more families in March and April compared to just January and February of this year. Um, so that's a pretty dramatic increase for, for us. And um, and we expect that need to continue. You know, I mean, the economy, there things are opening back up supposedly and people are starting to feel, I think, maybe just a bit more comfortable to go out, but it's going to take a long time. It will. And let's, let's hope there's not a spike in new cases uh, that's going to disable us. But, uh, Karen Posner, thank you so much uh, for joining us, and thank you so much for your work and the work of all the people at the Greater Cleveland Food Bank and, and keeping everybody fed best they can. And I hope this thank you. quickly. I'd like to thank Karen Posner for joining us from the Greater Cleveland Food Bank tonight. And uh, that concludes our show. So, again, thank you so much for listening to us. We'll be back again next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset, sat and drank my fresh mint.